and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Uh, Today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, looking at verses 11 through 28, and we're calling this message the removal of sin. It's right in the text that it says that. Uh, What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you seven points that the author of Hebrew makes that are accomplishments of Christ on the cross. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning, is seven accomplishments of Christ on the cross. When I was thinking about introducing this message, I ran into a joke, and so I'm going to share it with you. Um, There there are things that, that change. Right, we look at the world around us, and it's it's changing. Like you know, if you'd have seen somebody with a neck tattoo, say in the early 2000s, or say even the 2010s, you'd have thought, "I wonder where he hid the body." Um, Now you see someone with a neck tattoo, and you think, "This is going to be an amazing latte," right? (laughs) Like things change a little bit. But there are other things that don't change, right? There are things that don't change. And there are the things that don't change would be uh, we as human beings are, are sinful. Uh, we as human beings need a savior. And that Jesus Christ has paved the path for us to have our sin taken away so that we could be justified. That uh, what hasn't changed is that God is a God of justice. And so uh, the wrong has to be dealt with. But he's also a God of mercy and of love. And so instead of having us bear the penalty of our sin, Jesus Christ came and took that penalty for us to prove that he had paid for our sin once and for all by the shedding of his blood and the bringing of a new covenant. He rose from the dead three days later and he appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses over the course of 40 days and then ascended to the right hand of the father where he is now ruling a spiritual kingdom here on earth. We await his return, the promise of his return and the culmination of all of his promises coming into being. Those are things that don't change. And so what I want to do is I said a moment ago is I want to show you these seven accomplishments of Christ on the on the cross for us. And so let's jump right into it here. And it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once and for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and of bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling on those who were defiled, if that could sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Right away, if you haven't been with us, the author of Hebrews, he's writing to uh, Jewish Christians in the first century before 70 AD, before the Romans have destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And he's writing to them because they're experiencing persecution for following Jesus. And their temptation is to go back to a more socially acceptable form of religious practice. And what he's reminding them of over and over again is that while the law under Moses had a point, the point of it was to lead us to the Messiah and he has come, and I don't know what just happened, um, 
<laughs> Looks like Keynote crashed. Let me jump back in here. He has come, and we no longer need to. You should take that down. Put something up for a second. Um, there we go. Okay. Sorry. We love technology when it works, and now it's going to take me a couple slides forward. We're having a good time here. All right, so the, the, the point of the, what the author's doing is he's reminding the reader, don't go back to the just socially acceptable forms of worship, but instead keep following Jesus because he's higher and better than those things. And so you have a lot of Old Testament imagery with the blood of goats and calves and these different things. Um, and his point is that Jesus' sacrifice is, is greater than those. And so here's the first couple points within this is the first that the work of Christ on the cross never fails, fades, or becomes insufficient. By his own blood, he has obtained an eternal redemption. And so what Christ has done for us is once for all, his death on the cross is completely sufficient to pay for the penalty, the cost of sin, so that we are justified with God. And that never fails, fades, or becomes insufficient. There's never anything that you or I need to add to Christ's work on the cross in order to be justified with God. Obviously, we add works to the cross. Paul actually says that he is taking up what was lacking in the cross, a confusing phrase. But what he's talking about is that we add our works to uh, following Jesus, and that adds to uh, the building of his kingdom. But there's nothing that we add to the cross in order to be justified with God. Nothing more needs to be done as far as justification and the penalty of sin being paid. It's, it's taken care of. So this is good news for you, that if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, this is good for new news for you if you haven't. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, today could be the day that you say, I recognize that within me there are wrong thoughts that result in wrong actions. I don't recognize my creator for who he is. I've lived by my own standards or those standards of the world around me. And in the process, I've rejected God and I've hurt other people. I'm going to call that what it is. It's sin. The penalty for that sin has, has steep consequences. I'm thankful that Jesus Christ went to the cross to remove those penalties from my account, taking them to his own so that I could be right with God. You could say that right now and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that he rose three days later and you are justified in God's eyes as far as eternal consequences are concerned. They're done, they're taken care of, you're good with God. His blood has obtained eternal redemption. Here's what that word redemption was used for at the time it was used in this passage. It was the idea of somebody being a slave and somebody else came along and paid the cost to buy them out of slavery. What the Bible teaches us is that before we're followers of Jesus Christ, we are slaves to sin and we are bound to our own debt and the only way to be freed from it would be for someone to come along and break the chains for us. And that's what Christ did with his blood. He broke the chains, he paid the penalty so that you could be bought out of slavery to sin and actually become a co-heir and a child of God. That's the transformation that he's offering you. So it never fails, it never fades, and it never becomes insufficient. Jesus has done everything for you to have eternal redemption. The other thing here, and this might be a little bit of a confusing statement, the work of Christ on the cross causes a being precedes doing transformation. He cleanses our consciences so that we can serve the living God. What I mean by this is Jesus comes along and he takes a broken, sinful being and he causes us to be a holy, 
righteous being because he credits to us, he takes what's on our account to his and pays it off, and he credits to our account who he is. So before God asks you to do anything, he tells you to become, he actually causes you to become something, right? And we get this mixed up. What religion says is do something so that you can be right with God and become something. What Christianity says is God is giving you a new identity. He's causing you to be something that you never were before. He's cleansing your conscience, which is going to cause you to perceive right and wrong, not according to the world's standards, not according to your standards, but according to his standards. He's going to actually change the way that you view right and wrong forever. On top of that, we talked about last week how God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new set of desires. Go a step further. The Spirit of God actually indwells followers of Jesus Christ so that we become temples of God. So I have a new way of determining right and wrong, a new set of desires, and the very Spirit of God empowering me and guiding me to make decisions that I would never make on my own. That's who you are if you're in Jesus Christ. You you are a new conscience, you are a new heart, and you are a temple of the living God. You're no longer an enemy, but a friend. You're no longer uh, a rebel, but a son. You're no longer uh, fighting against his kingdom. You've become an ambassador of his kingdom. And you could go on and on. There's 30 some uh, statements within the New Testament of who you are in Christ. And what he's saying is embrace who God is saying you are, your being, and that will cause you to do or live differently. And that's the transformation that the gospel of Jesus Christ offers. We get it backwards most of the time. We tell ourselves that we have have to do something in order to become something. And God tells us, I'm making you something, live like it. Believe it and live like it. This is who you are. I've had several conversations with people where they said, you know, I've read the Bible, I I got through all that stuff, I'm pretty sure if I showed up at your church, I'd burst into flames. That's not how it works. Because God is not here to judge that, I mean, he will, he will, we'll talk about it in a moment. But he's not here to say your actions are all wrong, Get it right and I'll accept you. What he's really saying to us is you're dead and you need to become alive. That's actually what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. You're dead and you need to be born again. Would you like to be born again or do you want to be dead in your sin? The offer is like, it's such a, who says I'd rather be dead in my sin, right? Like why would you turn that down? But we do, we tell him, we tell God we'd rather be dead in our sin because we want to hold on to our sin because we love our sin because we think that we can find life without him. But he's calling us to something so much more. He wants to cleanse your conscience. He wants to cause you to be a new creation and then your life will follow along. Therefore, because that's what he's offering. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Are you being called this morning? Look at that word. Are you being called this morning? Is God calling you to him? He wants you to receive the promise of internal inheritance because death has taken place for the redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So he's saying Jesus died so that the times where we broke the law would be paid for. That's the paraphrase, where a will exists, a death of the one who made it must be established, for a will is valid only when people die, since there is never, since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. So he's now comparing a covenant with a will. And what we know about wills is say you go and you have your will done, 
and you're going to give all these different things to different people or leave them with dead. I don't know what you're going to do. Um, but you're going to give these things to different people when you pass away. And that doesn't happen until you die. And so the point is, is that the benefits of the new covenant through Jesus's blood, they can't take place until someone dies. Well, Jesus died. So the benefits of the new covenant have happened. So he's this mediator. That is why even when the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took blood, the blood of calves and goats, along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, the scroll containing the law, the people of Israel, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 24. It actually goes, kind of carries on through 31. According to the law, everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So what he's doing is he's saying God is consistent in the way that he makes covenants. With the Mosaic Covenant, there was the shedding of blood, there was a death, and then the benefits, and in the Old Covenant, the consequences of keeping or breaking the covenant were instituted because the death had taken place. In the New Covenant, all the benefits are ours because Christ has died for us. Okay, that's his line of argumentation here. And so what we see here is the work of Christ on the cross gives new relationship and steadfast hope. He, Jesus, is the mediator, the one who guides us into the very presence of God and allows us to have relationship with God, the mediator of a new covenant, a new term of relationship with God, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So he's giving us this new relationship. He's the one in the old covenant. If you wanted to have a relationship with God, you went through a mediator. You went through the priesthood and the sacrificial system. In the new covenant, we recognize that it's not a person, a human being that we go through, though Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine. But we go through just this one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is our way to have relationship, right relationship with God. He's the mediator of the new covenant. And what he's doing in that, he's also promising us an eternal inheritance. God is promising for you and I, followers of Jesus Christ, that what he promises he will keep. And there were all these promises in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come, that he would suffer, that he would die, that he would be punished for the iniquity of the people, and that he would rise again three days later. And so Jesus come and he comes and he fulfills all of those Old Testament promises and institutes the new covenant just as it was promised in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Those are places where we see the new covenant and Jesus comes to bring that about. And so not only is he giving us all these benefits of knowing him now, but he's also saying that there's something eternal that he's giving us that no one could ever take away. Just as his work on the cross justifies us and it could never fail, fade, or become insufficient, so his resurrection from the dead provides for us an inheritance laid up for us in the heavenly places where, uh, where nothing can take it away. If you're in Christ, you are secure and nothing you do or anybody else does can change it because it's not based upon that. It's based upon what Christ has done. So he gives us new relationship and a steadfast hope. We also see that the work of Christ on the cross was necessary for forgiveness. It says almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We're gonna see this word necessary show up here in in the next verse. And what it means is it means there was urgent pressure 
There was urgent pressure for sin to be paid for. It's like if someone had burned down your house and done you wrong or harmed you in some way, there would be urgent pressure in your life to have the situation taken care of. In the same way, in God's economy and his justice, there was urgent pressure for sin to be dealt with so that we could be right with him. Do you feel the urgent pressure in your life? If he's calling you and you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord yet, you should have a sense of urgent pressure. There is wrong in my life. There is sin in my life. It is not dealt with. It needs to be dealt with. And that's the place where we all find ourselves before we finally bow our knee and say, Jesus, we need you. But we still need him. There's still urgent pressure in our lives because if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that you still sin. You know that there are still times where you, you miss the mark. And so there's urgent pressure in our lives to go, how do, I, how do I receive what I need? I'm gonna repent of my sin. I'm gonna confess it for what it is. And I'm gonna thank Jesus that he has dealt with this sin. We can do that once for the beginning of your salvation. And we can do that on and on throughout our lives to continue in our salvation. God, I repent of my wrong. I'm sorry for this action that I took, these thoughts that I had, these words that I said, the harm that they caused, the way that they didn't follow you. I confess them for sin. I thank you that Jesus' death on the cross has provided everything necessary for forgiveness and I wanna walk in line with you once again as your Holy Spirit fills me. This is what it is. We go through this again and again, understanding that there's sin in our lives and when you recognize the sin, you should not go, I'll deal with it later. There should be urgent pressure. I'm going to deal with this now because I don't want it to fester. I don't want it to entangle me. I don't want it to grow, okay? And his blood on the cross has provided everything necessary for forgiveness. We go on. Therefore, it was necessary, there's that word, urgent pressure, for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. A confusing sentence if you haven't followed the beginning of the chapter. What he talked about in the beginning of the chapter was how that when Moses was given the instructions for the tabernacle, that it was to follow a pattern. And that pattern given by God to Moses was to mirror what was true of God's dwelling place in heaven. When we talk about heaven, a lot of people write the, the most common way people think about heaven is pagan imagery. Um, Little funny weird angels and clouds and pearly gates. That's all pagan imagery from the Roman world. When the Bible talks about heaven, it's talking about basically the tabernacle. It's talking about the place where God dwells. And we recognize that we live in three dimensions. God does not. And so this is a different dimension that is hard for us to wrap our minds around because we think in three, God's in more than that. And so he lives in a different dimension in perfect holiness. And what Jesus Christ has done is not cleanse the copies of those things, but he's cleansed the real thing so that our sin could be taken care of as a people and we could enter into the very presence of God. For Christ did not enter the sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself so that, you, so that he might appear in the presence of God for us. He went there for for us, and we're going to talk about this more in a second, but he went there for us so that he could care for us, so that he could intercede for our brokenness and plead so that we could have wholeness, so that we could be justified. He did this not to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly uh, with blood, with the blood of another. 
Jesus gave his own blood. The high priest in the Old Testament would go in one day a year with the blood of an animal to cover the sins of the people. Otherwise, he would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So let me walk you through this. Number five, the work of Christ on the cross provides heavenly justice and intercession. He went into heaven so that he might appear in the presence of God for us. If you sin and you make a mistake and you harm someone in your life, you will deal with earthly consequences. If you break the law and you do something that's against the law of our country, you will have earthly consequences for that and you get to pay for them. What Christ did for us is he paid the heavenly consequences, the eternal consequences of our sin for us. And so he provides justice because God is not somebody to sweep sin under the rug and pretend like it's not a big deal. He's a just God. It has to be paid for. How's it going to get paid for? And that's really what this passage is talking about. We often talk about what the gospel is. This is the how of the gospel. The how of the gospel is that God, triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, knew that when he gave us free choice, we would choose to rebel against him. Why did he give us free choice then? Because robotic love is not love. And so he wanted real love with us. And so he gave us the opportunity to choose to be obedient and express our love to him or to choose to be disobedient and express hate towards him. And in that choice, sin enters the world. And so that's what we know as a human race is rebellion against God, uh, rejection of his standards, and the harm that it causes. And for that, there are eternal consequences for our rebellion. What do you do with a rebel? You don't make him a king. You put him to death. And so that's when Jesus died on the cross. God knew that his son would become human that the divine would become man and in his perfection offer his life for our rebellion. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died between two insurrectionists as an insurrectionist to Rome. And what the picture is, is he's dying for our insurrection against the heavenly father. Not against the emperor or the president, but against the creator of the universe. He died for our rebellion so that our transgressions could be paid for, so that our sin could be taken away, so that we could become new creations. He justified us in God's sight. That's what he accomplished for us. That's how he accomplished it. Because God is a God of justice, someone had to die. Because God is a God of mercy, he chose not to let it be us. Because God is a God of love, he demonstrated his love to us through his son's death on our behalf. That's who God is. Here's the other part of who God is. A lot of people think he's ready to get us for our sin. Jesus Christ is in heaven right now praying for you. He knows your sin. He knows your struggles. He knows what you've done wrong. And instead of looking for a way to crush you, he's interceding for you. He's pleading for you. He's praying for you. He's sending his spirit so that we could be empowered and overcome our sin. This is unbelievable, right? When we took communion and you grabbed that little wafer and you put it in your teeth and he says, this is my body. What did we, what did, we do to it? We crushed it. 
He broke it before he gave it to them, knowing that his body would be broken. And then we drink the cup and it's a representation of his blood poured out for us. And so this heavenly justice and mercy and love is given to us, but now he rises from the dead. He appears to hundreds of eyewitnesses over the course of 40 days. He ascends to the right hand of the Father and what's he doing? He's saying, I know you. I know what's going on in your life. I know the wrong patterns. I know your thoughts. Whoa. I know your thoughts. I know your intentions. And instead of wanting to crush you for them, I was crushed for them already. I'm praying for you. I'm interceding for you. I'm sending my spirit to give you life. I don't know what your version of God is, but if he's, if he's angry looking to smash you, you don't know him. That's not who he is. He's interceding for you. He gave his life for you. He's praying for you. He's, he's sending us his very presence so that we could be with him and become his children. Like, I don't know what you think he is, but if you think he's harsh, you don't have it right. You know who's harsh? We are. Imagine offering love to somebody like that and getting stiff-armed. We're harsh. We're the ones who are pushing him away. He's the one who's seeking to embrace us. When we blame God for sin, we have it all wrong because we're the rebel. We're the transgressor. We're the sinner. We're the one who pushes him away. If there's harshness in the relationship, it's with us, not him. But he's just and he will return. But listen more. The work of Christ on the cross declares all punitive actions of the law based on our sin invalid. That word removal means the annulment of sin. It's invalid. And he's done this by the the sacrifice of himself. He declares all punitive actions of his own law, which is perfect and we should be held accountable for. He declares all of those invalid against us. Why? Because he already paid them. Right? You, ever, you ever seen somebody double dip? Like Seinfeld, you don't double dip the chip, right? You don't double dip for sin either. And so he's not gonna hold us accountable for it. He's not gonna do it because it's already paid for. It would be unjust if God looked at us and say, pay for it again. I know my son did, pay for it again. He won't do that. It's not who he is. It wouldn't be just. And so all of those are taken care of. But what, you know what we do? You know what Satan tells us to do. The lie is that you have to pay for it. The lie is that you are responsible for the consequences of your sin even though Jesus has paid them. And so what do we do? We look for ways to pay off our sin. Do you understand what that is? It's actually like slapping him in the face. Thanks for going to the cross. I don't think it was enough. But just recognize the gift here. All punitive actions of the law based on our sin are declared invalid. Here's the last one. I'm doing great, 12 minutes and 30 seconds. Um, The work of Christ on the cross ensures that upon his return, all who are saved by his blood will receive the fullness of salvation. Christ will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. When we talk about that word salvation, you have to think of it in three tenses, past, present, and future. The past is taken care of because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he justified us and we are once and for all no longer accountable to the law for our wrong action because Christ has paid it for us and we are justified. 
Present tense, I am in Christ, I am a new creation, all those, all those all those identity statements that I said to you earlier, that's who I am. The Holy Spirit indwells me. I recognize that this flesh that I live in still has sin that dwells within it, and so I have temptations that are out of line with God's will, but my conscience has been, has been cleansed. My heart has been new, made new. The Spirit of God lives inside of me, so I no longer have to give in to the power of sin because God is giving me everything that I need to not sin, but instead walk in righteousness. He's given us everything that we need to not sin, but instead walk in righteousness. I know what right and wrong is. He's given me a a cleansed conscience. His word instructs me, and my mind is renewed on a regular basis. I know. He's given me a new heart, and he's causing my desires to match his desires. Not the desires of my flesh, but the desires of my heart. Right? If you sin... You know it for what it is, and it might be a desire of your flesh, but when you sin and you're in Christ, you immediately feel repelled by it. Why did I just do that? That's not the desire of my heart. It was definitely the desire of my flesh, but it was not the desire of my heart because the desire of my heart is to honor Jesus Christ and live a life that glorifies him and causes other people to walk in relationship with him. And so we recognize that if I sin, it's a temptation, a desire of my flesh. I can't wait for that to be eradicated. But present tense, I'm being sanctified. Uh, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 how we see in a mirror dimly as we are transformed into the image of Christ. And that's what we're all walking through. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's what should be happening in your life. But we still have the presence of sin. The penalty's taken care of. The power is overcome. Cleanse conscience, new heart, spirit of God living in me. I have everything I need to not sin. I mean, I do it every day, but it means I have everything I need. Now the the presence of sin is what he's talking about here. We await for him to come back a second a time and experience the fullness of salvation. I recognize that this flesh is either going to die or Christ is going to return. Either way, I get a new body. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You and I, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, and actually if you, even if you're not, you get a resurrected body. The, the resurrected body of believers is sinless. And all those who indwell heaven have the penalty of sin taken care of, the power of sin being overcome, and the very presence of sin removed from who they are. Now, who are we? Are we just skin and bones? No. There's an immaterial part of us, our spirit and our soul. Our spirit has been made alive through the spirit of God dwelling inside of us. And we are now uh, connected to Christ in a way we never were before because you've trusted in him and he's made you a new creation. Our soul, our mind, our emotions and will are being guided by the Holy Spirit and the word of God, hopefully, right? That's what's happening in our lives. But when we die, this body dies, but my spirit and my soul, the immaterial part of who I am, it lives forever, It lives forever. The immaterial part of who you are lives forever, your spirit and your soul. The question is, where is it headed? And what he's talking about here is that when he returns the second time, it won't be to bear sin. He already did that. The idea that Jesus is going to return and forgive sins and that that, uh, at his second coming, salvation is universal is not biblical. When he comes a second time, he's not coming to bear sin. He already did that. And so the question is, has he, have I trusted him to bear my sin already? If I have, if I die today, I hope I don't for my wife, but I got life insurance. Um, 
if I die today, my spirit and my soul, it goes to, as Jesus describes in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it goes to Abraham's bosom, which is God's presence. It enters into God's presence right now. My spirit and my soul goes there. My body, it's going to get laid in the ground or cremated or whatever we do with it. I don't know. God's going to raise it up again later at his return, but instead of it being indwelled with sin, it'll be a body like his without sin and live and dwell with him forever in the heavenly places. If I'm not in Christ, my spirit and my soul, uh, when my body dies, it goes, Jesus describes it as to Hades or Sheol, and the place of Hades and Sheol is an immediate recognition of, oh no, God gave me everything I needed for salvation and I stiff-armed him. I wish I wasn't here. Right? What's the rich man say? Send Lazarus. Just get him out there to, to, to help my brothers. Make sure my brothers know this. And he says, they have the prophets and they have. If you're in Christ, your spirit and your soul immediately into the presence of God. If you're not in Christ, Hades, Sheol, immediate, oh no, and you await judgment upon Christ's return. I'm just saying this to you like it is because I hope you don't, I hope you don't get in the oh no spot. Right? Uh, Paul says that we, we beg of you, we plead with you, but the mercies of God be reconciled to him through what Jesus Christ has done. Why are you not going to do it? Don't cross your arms at him. Don't push him away. Embrace him and accept his love. Kneel before him as your Lord and say thank you. Because as it says here, I'm going to go back pretty far. Just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment... So also Christ, having offered himself to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is the gospel. Let me go through it with you. These are just the seven points in this. The work of Christ on the cross, it never fails, fades, or becomes insufficient. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ who has looked at his death on the cross and recognized it as the payment for your sin, don't try and pay it again. Confess it for what it is. Thank him for forgiveness. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. But never, never go through some religious ritualistic practice that beats yourself up in order to pay for sin. That's not the gospel. That's a gospel of law and your works. This is a gospel of grace and Christ's work. Uh, the work of Christ on the cross, it, it causes us to be something so that we will do something. His transformation is inside out. It gives us new relationship and steadfast hope. It was necessary for forgiveness. There's no other name under heaven by which man, humanity can be saved. I don't care what name you're calling on, they cannot save you because they are not the divine son of God taken on flesh, perfect and sinless, offering their life so that you can be saved and have new life. There's nobody else in the story of all of the religious practices that that's what happened. Only Jesus, the divine son of God, offered his life so that he would build a bridge from God to us. All the rest of them say you build a bridge to God. His Death was necessary. His bloodshed was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. It was an urgent need. He met it. He provides heavenly justice and intercession. You're right with God forever. He's pleading on your behalf right now. He declares all punitive actions of the law invalid and ensures that upon Christ's return, all who are saved by his blood will receive the fullness, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin, the fullness of salvation. This is who God is. This is what he's done for you. This is why we celebrate, we remember. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's a good reminder where you stand and who you are and what God's done and how he loves you.
If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't know what offer you're waiting for. Do you really think your sin and your ways are better than God's love and his mercy? Do you really think you have what it takes to stand before the God of the universe and say, I deserve to be forgiven because my good outweighs my bad? Do you really think that? Because what the scriptures teach us is that the point of the law is not to tell us that we have it together. It's to tell us how broken we are. So if you're trying to measure up to a law standard and you think you've met it, you are deceiving yourself. You haven't met it, but there is one who has met it for you. And he has tremendous grace and love towards you. The other thing I, I want to share is that C.S. Lewis, he, sh- he tells a story of, of us humans, and it's like, I'll put it in Nevada terms. It's like if somebody said, hey, I've got a, a cabin at the lake book for you, and um, it's a really nice spot up at the lake. It's right on the water. There's a boat. There's some jet skis. Like The, the refrigerator is stocked. Uh, you can invite as many people as you want, uh, and, and, and it's all booked for you. And you're like, you know, I was thinking about playing in the mud at the Carson River. <laughs> And the mud at the Carson River is us thinking that our sin is tasty. And the, the mansion at the lake is God's blessing. That's what he has for you. So why are we playing in the mud? And here's the answer why we play in the mud. It's because the lie, I think particularly in the West, that our culture tells us is that pleasure and happiness are the same thing. That if I'm experiencing pleasure, I will be happy. But pleasure, it cannot bring happiness. It just won't do it. But if you believe that, if you believe that pleasure and happiness are the same thing, let me tell you where you are. You're right in the palm of the liar. You're right in the palm of the evil one. And he's got you right where he wants you because he thinks, look at this, look at this. I got him on a string now. They're just going to keep doing things for pleasure. And I'm going to tempt them with the world. With the wor- world. I'm going to tempt them with the system of the world around them. I'm going to tempt their flesh. I'm going to whisper lies in their ears. And watch, I'm going to make this puppet dance on the string of pleasure. But if you want true happiness, if you really want to be happy, sometimes the best thing for us is not pleasure, but difficulty. Sometimes the best thing for us isn't ease and having it the way that we want it. Sometimes the best thing for us is somebody walking alongside us and going, his name is Jesus. You don't have it together. You need help. I'm right here. What are you doing over there in the mud? Let's go to the lake. I have something so much better for you. Why Why are you doing this? And so maybe you ask yourself that question. You're just hanging out in the mud, thinking pleasure and dancing on that little string is life? Or do you want more? Do you want something deeper? Do you want someone who is better? And that's the other thing I'll share with you as we wrap up, is that the language within the book of Hebrews here, what he does over and over again is superlative language. What he's saying is that Jesus Christ is the highest and best. He's the highest and best savior. He's the highest and best mediator. He's the highest and best expression of love. He's the highest and best anything that you can think of. Jesus is the highest and best. He's better than Moses. He's better than the prophets. He's better than angels. He's better than you trying to fulfill the law. He's the highest and best of all of these things. 
So do you want the highest and best? Do you want the one who is the highest and best? He wants you. Think about that. All of your self-doubt, all the times you beat yourself up, all the times you think you aren't enough, the highest and best died for you. He wants you. He loves you. Let me pray. Jesus, sometimes it's, it's difficult to even imagine what you've done for us, how you spent your, your body and your blood on us. But you did. And Father, it's hard to imagine that you would look at your son and say, we really love him, don't we? We do. Go get him. What's the cost? It's your life, son. But that's the, the amazing news of who you are, God. You're just. And you will not sweep sin under the rug, but you're merciful. And you sent your son to be a suffering servant on our behalf so that we could be freed from the penalty of sin. So that it would have no hold upon us. You rose from the dead so that we would know that when we leave this life, the next one is 100% secure. And we live this one here and now in a, in a posture of gratitude and need, thanking you for who you are and always seeking your face. Guide us to do that, God. If someone here this morning is on the fence, will, they, will you push them over into your kingdom? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.